Hello and welcome. I'm Rich Bucata, Medical Director here at the Center for Medical Education. So thanks for joining us for our podcast. Today's presentation is a provocative one entitled Serious Causes of Common Complaints. Serious Causes of Common Complaints? Yes, you bet. It's from our advanced boot camp course and it's presented by Diane Birnbaumer. Diane was the Associate Emergency Medicine Residency uh, director at Harbor General, which is a UCLA-affiliated hospital here in Los Angeles, for 20 years. Uh, she has been the recipient of Catch This, the ASAP Outstanding Contribution and Education Award. That goes to one person out of all the ASAP members. They pick one person a year to give this award to. And she was also recognized as the ASAP Speaker of the Year. So I know you'll enjoy it. Um, okay, remember, close your books. Okay, we're going to do this closed. We're not going to do this open, so don't cheat because it helps you. You want to think, right? You want to think. So we're going to go back and do, I think, five more cases. Like I can squeeze in five. And remember, our goal here is to think about the most serious thing that's happening, the most probable thing that's happening, the most weird or interesting thing this could be, and then what we're going to do about it. So what, are you, what are you planning to do? So that's what we're going to do. So let's do the next case. My calf is killing me. 32-year-old female, she presents basically to your office or your urgent care, wherever you happen to be, with 10 out of 10 lateral calf pain. It's been there for a couple of hours. It started after riding a horse. So she has a friend who has horses, and she was riding a horse all day long with a friend. She doesn't usually ride horses, but she's very athletic. This woman is in great shape. So the, um, she's yeah, lots of activity, she do, but not riding horses usually. She took Advil to help the pain. Um, it's helped a little bit, but it's just not helping anymore. So she dug around in, the, in her husband's sort of cabinet, found some Vicodin, took a couple of Vicodin, and that just isn't helping either. So she said, that's it, I need to come see you. So no, I didn't hurt it directly. It isn't red. Um, I haven't had any trauma there that I know about. She's, I've never had this before. I don't have a fever. I have no past medical history. I'm a totally healthy person, but geez, my calf is killing me. My vital, her vitals are normal. Her exam is normal except for that calf. When you look at the calf, when you look at it, it looks normal. So there's no redness, there's no swelling, it looks normal. When you palpate the lateral calf, it's painful, it's tender, and the distal neurovascular exam is normal. So that's the patient sitting in front of you in your urgent care or your fast track area. She's sitting there complaining of calf pain, you know, whatever, calf pain. Anything else you need to know about her? Louder. Medications? Is that what she said? I'm sorry, it's hard. Medications. So she takes nothing except the Advil and the Vicodin that she took. Nothing chronically. Okay, you guys, it's really hard to hear. So loud, sink. And it, no, no trauma. No trauma to this at all. Not before either. That leg's always been fine. She's a runner, though. She runs a lot. No history of cancer. No recent antibiotics, which is always, it's just, that's like a good thing to ask everybody, right? <laughs> On birth control pills. No, why do you ask that? DVT. So that's, again, that's a really good thing to think about. You don't necessarily have to have swelling to have a DVT. So that's a really good thing. So you guys are, you're all on the right track here. This is all really smart stuff to ask about. What else? Recent immobilization. Again, we're getting into that DVT thing. Could this have been, was she bedridden? Over here, so, so over there. Step off injury. So did she actually have like, where she actually stepped? So what are you thinking about with a step off injury? 
like a gastroc tear. That's a really good idea, right? She's having like, why is this pain so bad? Did she have something where she, maybe did she feel a snap? Did she have something she felt? Because remember, she was riding a horse. Did she have something she felt change in there? Which she says, no. Basically, all this stuff, she's never had it before. All these things, the answer is really no. She doesn't take birth control pills. She hasn't been immobilized. It is no. So let's get to our serious. What's the most serious thing this could be? Calf pain, compartment syndrome. That sounds kind of interesting. We'll talk about whether we think that's true, but that's, put that on your radar. Compartment syndrome, that makes some sense, right? She's having a lot of pain. Anything else that's serious in there? You talked about DVT. That's a serious thing, right? I, I'm going to keep DVT in my serious list here. Rhabdo. Ooh, why rhabdo? Lots of pain, right? And it's kind of a calf. Maybe rhabdo's an issue. So that's something. And actually, rhabdo and, and compartment syndrome kind of are married to each other, right? So that's not a bad idea. What about the most probable thing? Oh, I've got a nerve injury over there? Maybe, although her distant nerve vascular exam is normal, but something to think about. But what, is she, what did she do all day yesterday? She rode a horse. So it's hurting. So what she probably do? Strained a muscle. I mean, that's the most probable thing, right? It's just a muscle strain. And what's the most interesting, weird thing this could be? So just think about it. Again, I'll let you kind of pick. The whole point of this is just to keep your, your differential deep. But let's talk about it. What do you do now for her? She's sitting in your fast track area. And you've got to decide, I'll tell you what all of us are going to do, which is sort of cheating and stupid, is we're going to order an x-ray, right? Which is not going to give you much information at all. She didn't fall. There's no trauma. A lot of us would just like buy some time by ordering an x-ray, but I'm not sure that's going to give me anything I need to know. So what do you do with this patient? What do you think is wrong? How many people are going to put your money on compartment syndrome? We're thinking about how many of you going to want to get an ultrasound and look for a DVT? Totally fine to do. Totally fine to do. And if you want to just send her home, I understand sort of the temptation. But what is it about her history that's a little bit scary here? Lateral pain, 10 out of 10. And narcotics, opioids are not making it go away. What is happening to this woman? That is just, she's a jock. This woman runs every day. That is a red flag. Why is she taking narcotics and it's still not helping her pain? So I put my money on compartment syndrome. And the thing about compartment syndrome is we think about compartment syndrome in trauma, right? So somebody has a fracture in there and they're bleeding into that compartment. And of course, we're going to worry about a compartment syndrome. But you can get compartment syndrome without any direct trauma. So what this is, and you all know this, within, so your body, you have lots of compartments in your body. And what's really cool is it's like a saran-wrapped area of your body. And within it usually is a muscle, a nerve, and a vessel, and sometimes bones and things as well. But it's, it, your body has these, all these little saran-wrapped areas that kind of divide it up into bits and pieces. So if you end up with an injury where you get increased either edema or bleeding into that compartment, it doesn't have anywhere to go. So it gets higher and higher pressures in that compartment. And eventually what it will do is damage flow to the muscle and it will damage the nerve and the blood vessels themselves. So you can't get flow. Your nerve will get involved and your blood vessels will. But I'll tell you, think about what's happening in there. To get to the point where I have no pulses distally, your pressure within that compartment has to be as high as your systolic blood pressure. That is a really late finding. So don't look for pulselessness distally. It isn't there. It just, and by that time, everything in there is dead. Everything in that compartment is dead. You may get some neuropathy and they may get some tingling kind of stuff, but the, the reality is as that compartment gets more and more pressure in it, it gets really painful. And that's your clinical clue. 
pain out of proportion to what's happening in there. Why is she having so much pain for somebody who just rode a horse for a while? So this is a limb threat for sure. This can cause basically problems with neural, neurovascular compromise to the limb, but it is also a life threat. So if somebody brought up crush syndrome or rhabdo, what you can end up with if the compartment is big enough is you basically kill a bunch of muscle. And when you do that, you get rhabdo, you can also get a very high potassium as it releases potassium. We talked about that with tumor lysis, right? It's the same idea. The cells are dying. They're releasing potassium. So you can end up with somebody dying from a crush syndrome, from hyperkalemia, if this is too bad. So if this can be a life threat. Definitely it can be a limb threat. And we think of it in fractures, but I want you to think about it in overuse kind of disorders or, so like and she was. So this is a woman who runs. So she's used to doing this, but she sat on a horse. And if you ride a horse, you know, you push laterally in the stirrups. You're actually kind of holding the horse with your, with your thighs and you're pushing laterally with the stirrups to kind of keep yourself in place. So she's stretching that lateral aspect of her calf that she doesn't usually do. That isn't over, and she did it all day long. How fun, how fun, except that's overuse for her. That's another group that gets this. And so it may not be on your radar as, a, as something to worry about because there's no direct trauma, but that's overuse. And I'll tell you, the third group we miss this in are people that get altered and then stay in a certain position for an extended period of time. We had a case relatively recently of a guy who was an alcoholic who drank himself into a complete stupor and was out for a while sitting on a cement stairway. So he was sitting on a cement stairway, kind of passed out, was there for hours, and came in with bilateral gluteal compartment syndromes. He basically had pain out of proportion in his butt. But that was our clue. It's like, why is he having so much pain in his bottom? Why is it hurting so much? Because he basically had sat on it so long, it had poor perfusion, got edema, and he ended up in compartment syndrome. So no, there's several entities that can get compartment syndrome. And when they present, your key is pain out of proportion. Anything that is pain out of proportion, this is the torsion kinds of cases, this is the ischemia kinds of cases, any, like mesenteric ischemia, anything pain out of proportion is a warning sign to you that something is not getting adequate blood supply. That is your clue. So, and, and the thing, it's, and we all do this, right? You document, compartment soft, compartment soft, compartment soft. Well, this particular compartment is hard to feel. And the compartment may not feel that firm depending what's over it. If you've got a lot of soft tissue over it, you may not feel the compartment itself. The compartment has muscle. Everything over it, all this fat and stuff that's over it, is, is, is between you and feeling that compartment. So the compartment may not be firm. And don't use that to be a thumbs up or thumbs down on the diagnosis. What you need to do here is measure the compartment pressures. And what's fascinating, I did a survey, actually, of orthopedists that asked them, you know, how, how many of you, because we usually call ortho to do this. And the orthopedists don't do compartment pressures. It's pretty hard to get an orthopedist to come in and do a compartment pressure. Please put your foot down, though, and get someone to measure the compartment. There are all kinds of little doodads and devices to do this, but you need to measure compartment pressures. And there's some MacGyver ways to do it with things like art line pressure lines and things. But just know you got to know what the pressure is in that compartment. If you are worried about compartment syndrome and you're not in the main part of the ER, please send the patient to the main part of the ER. They need to have these things measured. And usually if they find it's, it is truly a compartment syndrome, they do a fasciotomy. They cut that thing open. So it causes gigantic scars in people, but it saves the limb. So again, remember, overuse can do it. It doesn't have to be trauma. Pain out of proportion is your clinical clue. Don't expect distant nervascular compromise. Okay, that ends up kind of a late finding. All right, let's do another one. Oh, by the way, this, I'm going to back up a sec. This is a compartment that she had involved. That little tiny thing on the lateral compartment, that is what was involved. So that's, you can tell why that wouldn't be particularly easy to palpate whether it's firm or not. That's all she had involved. Okay, how about this one? I have an eye infection, can I have some eye drops? Okay, we've seen gajillions and gajillions of people with eye infections. She's 18, she's totally healthy, no medical problems. She basically complains of two days of increasing pain and redness and discharge in her eye. 
The discharge is purulent and her vision is blurry while it's there, but then she wipes it away and she's fine. Okay, her vision is not affected by this, except when it's kind of goopy in there. Her vitals are normal. Her HENT exam is completely normal. Um, her pupils are equal. Her EOMs are fine. Again, her visual acuity is okay when she wipes the junk out of there. Her right eye is red, has conjunctivitis, and she definitely purulent. It looks like that. Okay. Anything else you want to know about her? Oh, yeah, I hear it. You guys are all, all about sex, right? You're going to ask her about her sexual history. You guys are all about sex. We're in Vegas. I get it. But actually, that is absolutely a question you want to ask her. Any, any, what, what, any sexually transmitted infections, what kind of sexual activity you're having, do you have any discharge? You're going to ask her that. Absolutely going to ask her that. Anything else? Con say it again? Oh, wear contact. So that's, okay, so the two big questions, sexual activity and contact lenses. Ask her if she wears contact lenses. Contact lenses with that kind of eyeball is a frightening thing. Somebody who has that kind of eyeball who has a sexual history where you're concerned is a frightening thing. So let's talk about it. So here's the kind of trauma. I'm going to ask her all this jazz if she's ever had it before. Serious? Most serious thing? You guys are asking the questions. What's the most serious thing? Gonococcal conjunctivitis. Anything else serious? She's not a contact lens wearer. I don't have to worry about all the sort of fungi things that grow in your eyeball. I don't have to worry about that. The amoeba issue. Don't have to worry about that. So corneal ulcer, right? All this thing. So uh, she has something not great with that eyeball. Something not great. Well, most probable thing, bacterial conjunctivitis that's not gonococcal, right? It's, it's, it's goopy, but that's probably the most probable thing. Um, is something interesting this thing might be? Well, I don't know, foreign body maybe? Is she a gardener and she got a rose poking in her eyeball and she has barotrichosis of her eye? You know, weird things, remember those? But let's stick with them. So where is your money on her? What do you think's wrong with her? How many of you say gonorrhea? I say gonorrhea, man. That eyeball is gonorrhea till proven otherwise. I do not care if she is a nun. I, that is gonorrhea till proven otherwise. This is gonococcal conjunctivitis. And what I really want to ask her is, does she know the guy with the knee pain that we talked about this morning? <laughs> Are they like best friends, BFFs? Because she has gonococcal conjunctivitis. And this is crucial for you to recognize. Really, really important. It's usually direct contamination. So you wipe your eyeball. So that's why you really want to wash your hands when you go to the bathroom. You wipe your eyeball and you inoculate yourself. It causes basically bacterial conjunctivitis on steroids. It's just like whacked out, crazy gone postal bacterial conjunctivitis. It looks like that. So you get chemosis of the eye, you get lots of discharge, it's, it's definitely purulent, and it's kind of greenish. Gonococcal discharge has a little bit of a green hue to it, it is not, it is bad news. And what it's doing in your knee, to that guy with the knee, you know, all those white cells are kind of chewing up his knee, it's doing that to your eye. It is chewing up your cornea, and it is invading your eye. It is really, really important to recognize this, because drops will not work. They will not stop the process at all. So inadequate treatment can lead to corneal ulcerations, which you guys talked about, and true, honest-to-God, enophthalmitis. And in my career, I've seen three people lose an eye from undiagnosed gonococcal conjunctivitis, that they ended up with enophthalmitis, and they had to have a nucleation. They could not get that eradicated. They had to lose an eye. So be careful with this. Globe perforation can absolutely happen. They can lose that eye. This is one of the cases where actually a gram stain may be useful. If you're at the bedside, it's like, yeah, I know it's bacterial, and it looks kind of bad, but I don't really know if this is gonococcal or not. Take a swab and send it up for gram stain. It turns out that gram stain is often positive in this particular disorder. So send it up for gram stain. They're going to they're report back gram-negative intracellular diplococci. That's gonorrhea. That's what we're going to report back to you. 
We should culture it as well because resistance is a potential issue, but this is an IV antibiotic-treated disease. This is not drops. This is something you give IV ceftriaxone for, and it is basically a gram. You irrigate the eye as well to kind of take care of all the inflammation that's happening in there, and then talk to an, a, an ophthalmologist. They know about this. They are all over this. They are completely aware of this disorder, and they will follow these patients. They, mean, they don't necessarily need to be admitted. The IV dose can be done sort of on an outpatient basis, but they often will at least obs them for 24 hours. So be aware of that disorder. Okay, how about this one? I had a bad headache last week, and now I feel like the room is spinning, and I feel really unsteady. He's 28. He's a healthy guy. He developed a rapid-onset severe occipital headache last week, but it resolved spontaneously. And that sounds kind of familiar to something we talked about before. Over the last 24 to 48 hours, he's had a gradual onset of feeling unsteady on his feet. He feels kind of like the room is rocking. Not really spinning, but he feels like the room is rocking. And, he, and the right side of his face feels kind of numb. He's never had it before. It feels kind of numb. He's never had this before. He has no recent illnesses, no ear pain, no URI symptoms, nothing else. Just this headache that went away, and now this feeling of being unsteady and a numb face. No head trauma, nothing, 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 nothing. His vitals are normal. His exam shows some vertical nystagmus. So not horizontal, vertical nystagmus that doesn't go away. He also has no other neurologic findings. So the only thing, you can, he walks okay. He looks a little bit unsure of himself, but he seems to walk okay. But he just definitely has this nystagmus. Is there anything else you need to know about him? Been to a chiropractor. Absolutely critical to ask. And parallel to that is any trauma that might have involved his neck. So have you had a whiplash injury? Have you had a little fall? Did you, the last case I saw of this, were you whitewater rafting for an extended period of time with your head turned one direction? What are you getting at with this question? What are we getting at? Why do we care? Dissection. Okay, so be careful with this. Anything else we want to know about him? Because he gave us pretty much a decent history. I would want to know nausea, vomiting. That kind of helps me in that vertigo thing. It helps me a little bit worry about how acute this is and what it might be. And trauma, you asked about that. Chiropractics and the other trauma. So the most serious thing we're talking about here is dissection, right? That's the most serious thing we're talking about. What's the most probable thing? Maybe he has benign positional vertigo. Maybe he has labyrinthitis. That's why I want to know about the nausea vomiting. If he has no nausea vomiting, those are less likely. If he says, yeah, I've been barfing my brains out, well, now I'm a little bit more worried about this being a peripheral cause of his vertigo. The, the, the thing that bugs me, though, is that vertical nystagmus is a scary finding. That's not what you see with peripheral vertigo. Peripheral vertigo is horizontal nystagmus. It is not something you see. Cent uh, that is a central kind of vertigo, the vertical nystagmus. And anything, you know, could this be something else weird? Could he have a tumor in there? Could he have a hemangioma in there? Sure he could. But the reality is I'm worried about dissection. And you should be worried about dissection. This kid had a vertebra basilar dissection. Turns out more and more as we're diagnosing younger people with strokes, it turns out that dissection, particularly vertebral basilar, is becoming a very, not very common, a more common cause. Now, still, I want you to know, this is a needle in a haystack. This is not the most common finding, you know, most common cause of somebody who's having symptoms. But these symptoms, absolutely. Vertical nystagmus, it doesn't go away. He basically has numbness on the side of his face that he can feel. And he, why did he get that headache? What was up with the headache? What, what is that terrible headache thing? Why did he get that? So it turns out with dissection, either carotid, the headache could be in the front, or vertebra basilar, the headache could be in the back. A um, dissection, when it initially starts, looks for all the world like subarachnoid hemorrhage. Abrupt onset, severe headache. 
What I want you to do now is let's backtrack a little bit to that subarachnoid case. And in your interesting category of somebody, okay, abrupt onset severe headache, most likely thing's gonna be subarachnoid, most probable thing's gonna be just a regular headache. The most interesting thing this could be is dissection. Put that in your differential permanently because it'll help you pick up on these kinds of cases. They present with usually some history of minor something. I had a chiropractic event and they did my thing to my neck. Or I was whitewater rafting like the guy that we just took care of. Or It's something that involves that I had a minor MVA and my neck got snapped back. That may be all it takes with this. That may be all it takes. And the history of its vertebra basilar is usually a severe occipital headache at some point in time. And what's interesting, you would think with a dissection, I'm dissecting now, you would think that the neurologic findings would be right now. Now, but it turns out they're not. There is usually a lag time from the headache onset and usually resolution to the neurologic findings of about 10 days. It can be as short as a couple of days. It can be as long as two weeks, but there's a delay. What's happening is that dissection is moving its way along and finally starts to knock off things that go to actually the central nervous system. So it isn't right away. And what's cool about that is if you diagnose them at the headache stage, so say you saw him on that first, pre first day he had the headache and you diagnose him because, wow, he had a chiropractic event and that's why he has this dissection, that you are going to look like a rock star because you can get him treated before he has something neurologic. So that's actually awesome. Again, this takes a while for these brainstem, and these are all brainstem, it's a vertebra basilar, right? So he has this facial numbness because actually there are certain nerves that you knock off as you come up the, the vertebra basilar system. His vertigo is because he's basically infarcting part of his cerebellum. His nystagmus is because that's cerebellar. That's the problem that he has. And if you are in fast track or if you're out in an urgent care somewhere, this kid comes right to the ER and they get, he either gets a CTCTA or an MRMRA. You've got to see the, and remember, not just of his head, of his neck. You actually go down to the neck so you actually see if you can find those findings. Because the treatment is anticoagulation. The way they treat this is to anticoagulate and antiplatelet agents. And often people will recover. But if you don't get those on board, they can continue the dissection and end up with things like locked-in syndrome and terrible stuff with vertebra basilars. So just remember, keep it on your radar. Abrupt onset severe headache. It'll be occipital if it's vertebra basilar. It'll be frontal up here if it's carotid. And then they, and your job is to go back and ask, have you had any manipulation of your neck? Anything that might have tweaked your neck where you're worried now that they've done some sort of dissection. So there you go. That's that one. Two more cases. My leg is red and tender, and I think I may have a fever. 54-year-old guy, history of non-insulin-dependent diabetes. He's noted redness sort of around his left ankle a couple of days ago. He's had this before. He's had cellulitis before. He was seen in urgent care then, was given PO um, cefazolin, basically sent home on, for cellulitis, which is fine. Looks like, yeah. So he said, you know what? It's still there. It got a little better for a while. It seems to be kind of just not getting a whole lot better. And now it hurts. It hurts more than it hurt before. It's now hurting up his lateral calf. Even though the redness is still around his ankle, he said, there's some pain on my calf. Okay, up above it. There's some pain on there. And initially, non-steroidals help, but they're just not helping anymore. I'm still taking them, but it's not helping the pain anymore. You know, and today, I just feel a little sick to my stomach, and I'm just really tired today. I'm just really, really tired today. His vitals are normally safe. He has a heart rate of 115. And I have to tell you, in my career, I, there are two vital signs I've gained a great deal of respect for. One is the heart rate. An isolated tachycardia, I always worry about. You know, they may be in pain, they may be anxious, whatever. If I make sure that they're hydrated, not in pain, and, not, and that stays tachycardic, I'm missing something. The other vital sign I have a great deal of respect for that, that gets no respect at all is the respiratory rate. Really count it yourself. It is amazing what that resp if a respiratory rate of 20 is not normal. That's the respiratory rate of triage, right? Because they count for 15 seconds and multiply times four. And they get five of them, and then they get multiply times four, and they get 20. The reality is sit and watch it yourself. You, your respiratory rate is 12. It's not 20. 20 is abnormal. 
That's not normal. And if it really is truly 20, when you count it for, for 60 seconds, nah, something's up. Something's up with that patient. So he has an isolated hypertension or uh, tachycardia. That's all he has. When you look at his ankle, that ankle, it's mildly swollen and it's red and it's tender. When you palpate his calf, he's actually tender, palpation a little more proximally. It's not red, it's not you know, warm. It's just tender, proximally. Um, and uh, that's basically it on his exam. He's not febrile, that's it. Anything else you want to know about him? Are his sugars, I would ask, he's a diabetic. So ask him, do you check your sugars and how they doing? He said, you know, it's funny. Yeah, they're usually great. You know, my A1C is fabulous. My sugars are usually sort of the 120 to 160 range. They've been sitting about 220, and then this morning it was 300. Hmm, worth knowing, worth knowing. What else? Sweat. Say it again? Sweat. Sweats. So he has felt, today he's just not good. So I just feel nauseated. I, I just don't feel good today. I just, I don't feel good. So here's what I would ask him. I'd ask him about red streaking. Now, it's hard in people of color. You may not see red streaking, but if somebody has light enough skin, if they have red streaking, I feel better. So it turns out red streaking means lymphogenic spread, but that means that the infection is spreading along tracks I can see versus the infection spreading where I can't see it. That's the scary one. And you asked about blood sugar. We just found out. So what's the most serious thing this guy could have? Neck fash. Please keep neck fash on your radar. What's the most probable thing he has? Cellulitis with a treatment failure. Okay, that's the most probable thing. Most interesting thing, I don't know, maybe he's traveled overseas somewhere and he has some sort of some lymphangitis from sort of filariasis, something weird, whatever. The reality is I'm worried about neck fash, but it's probably just cellulitis. Where are you going to put your money? Do you think it's neck fash? And why do you think it might be neck fash? What is it about his exam that's just weird? That calf, what's up with the calf? The problem's in his ankle. Except that, no, he is tender and has pain above that. What's that called? It's called a skip lesion. Why does he have that? Because the infection is spreading below where I can see. It's spreading along a fascial plane that's deep, that I can't see. And so it's causing him pain as it's moving elsewhere. This guy has necrotizing fasciitis. And one of the things to know about neck fash is that somebody who's taking non-steroidals can basically calm the inflammatory component of this somewhat and present looking more indolent, like a sort of cellulitis is not getting better. So non-steroidals, especially for MRSA, non-MRSA um, neck fash, turns out non-steroidals kind of muddy the water a little bit, and people may stay at home a few days longer than otherwise, and this thing spreads a little further because it's calmed the inflammatory component. It is basically the scariest of the SSTIs. It is another pain out of proportion thing, or a skip lesion thing. It's like, why is he having so much pain? It doesn't make sense. And where is this pain coming from in his calf? What is up with that? Use your clinical judgment. That's just not normal. That's like, that's like a, a little sign blinking at you saying something is more than just a cellulitis in this guy. What you're going to go back is look at those abnormal vital signs. They may or may not have a fever. It turns out some of the worst neck fash kinds of cases that you can get don't get fever. But abnormal vital signs are relatively common, particularly tachycardia. So it's just, or, or tachypnea. It's like, why would this guy have a respiratory rate of 22 if he did? Or why is he sitting here with a heart rate of 115 with no reason to have it? So, and if you feel, sub, and by, when you're feeling, you're going to feel, is it tender? Is it real warm, etc. You're going to also be feeling for sub-Q air. But I want to tell you, if you, neck fash has a whole bunch of different kinds of causes. And we think about gas gangrene as one of them, and it is. That is one of them. And you might feel air in the tissues, and you might see air in the tissues on imaging. 
Most neck fascia, though, isn't that. Most neck fascia doesn't produce air de novo. It's not a clostridium. It's a true bacteria. And so it isn't producing gas necessarily at all. It's just killing tissue. It's necrotion tissue as it kind of progresses pretty rapidly. So don't, if you, if you find sub-Q air, worry like crazy. That's the diabetic. You will feel their foot. It's like crunchy, crunchy, you know, rice krispies under the skin, scary stuff. That's scary. If you don't feel it though, it, you're not off the hook. It still can be neck fascia. Another thing that may be a clue to you is when you get his labs, if his sodium is low, so yeah, say it comes back at 126 and you look at his sugar and you correct it, it corrects to normal. That's one thing. But if you correct his sugar or his uh, sodium for his sugar and it still is low, worry. If his Y count is super high, worry. Over 16,000, kind of worry. And what you're going to do if you think it's neck fascia is if you're in fast track, you're going to move him over to the uh, big side of the ED. If you're in urgent care, you're going to send him right to the ED and antibiotics right away. And this is a surgical problem. Antibiotics don't fix it. Surgery fixes it. They have to go in and basically cut out all that dying tissue. Got to cut it out and get rid of it. So it's really super important. The clinical clue to you in this guy, he's a risk patient because he's diabetic. So diabetics have higher risk. So that's one thing. He has a tachycardia I really can't explain. And he has a skip lesion that is, he's painful where he shouldn't be. And it's pretty painful where he shouldn't be. And he seems to be a treatment failure. And he's on non-steroidals that will make it harder to diagnose. So he has some clinical clues for him. So neck fascia, be aware of. Last case. This is in honor of my great aunt. I fell in the parking lot and hit my head. I have a little headache and my neck is a little sore. 84-year-old female tripped on a curb and fell. She was in the parking lot of the DMV renewing her driver's license, God bless her, because she drives to church every morning to open the church. She, when she fell, she struck her chin on a bench, um, but otherwise, fine. She didn't lose consciousness. Nothing really got hurt. She didn't even hurt her chin particularly. Um, she scraped her hands and knees as she kind of caught herself when she fell, but that was about it, nothing else. She came right away to urgent care, okay, right away to urgent care. She said, you know, my hands and my feet are bugging me. Okay, I fell, I've got these scrapes. I'm a little worried because I, don't, I know as an older person, I won't heal so well. I'm a little worried about this. She has mild upper neck pain, that's it. And she's taking hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension. That's it. Her vitals are normal. Her exam shows the abrasions as described. Um, they don't look terrible. They're very superficial, not bad. No foreign bodies in it. They look good. Um, she is tender on cervical spine palpation on her upper C-spine. And you're sitting there in your urgent care. Anything else you want to know about her? Does she have RA? Good question. Why, tell me why you asked that. They are. So RA, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you, what you have when you have your cervical spine, you've got your, your sort of top, v, your top is cervical vertebrae. It's the circle. And then you have your dens on C2 that's up in that circle. And the way that the dens is held in place is a transverse ligament across the hole in C1. There's a ligament that goes across it, and it holds the dens forward. People with RA have that thing damaged and they can actually just rupture through that ligament that then makes C1 on C2, makes that dens kind of flipping back and forth in the space of C1. It doesn't stay in place. That's that pre-dental space you're supposed to look at. So that's, our asking about RA is a really good question. What else? Always ask that. Was it truly a mechanical fall? She is an elderly woman. Did she have a syncopal episode instead? So ask her, do you remember everything that happened? Any, any syncopal older, or any I fell older person, anybody actually, ask them, do you remember absolutely everything that happened? Because what you may get back is, well, I must have tripped because I found myself on the floor. Well, that's not the same as I remember tripping and falling on the floor. That's, again, trying to fill in the gap. So that's a very good question. She's an older person. Maybe she actually had a syncopal episode. 
Was it really a mechanical fall? Any associated symptoms at the time of the fall? Did you have any chest pain, shortness of breath? Did you feel dizzy? Any associated? She didn't. She was fine. She just truly tripped. In fact, she kind of gives you one of those, really, of course I tripped. Why are you asking me that? Most serious thing, neck fracture. Most probable thing, be a stranger neck. Actually, but I'll tell you, at 84, it's also probably the most probable thing to have a neck fracture with that kind of mechanism. Anything I'm missing? Probably not. This is what she had. This is my great aunt. Actually, this is my great aunt's scan. She fell in the parking lot. She broke her neck right there. And the reason that elderly people break their necks there, think about it. Most, that's actually a pretty decent C-spine for an older person. Most of the time, that middle section is all... Because let me just smoosh it all together. Because it's full of arthritis. So when you're old, you all, healthy young people, when you do this and you move your neck, most of the movement is either C4 on C5 or C5 on C6. By the time I fused my neck with 80 years of life, the only place it really moves is up here. So when that happens, I snap my dents. The most common cervical spine fracture in people over the age of 85 is a dense fracture. In people over 65, it also increases in likelihood. So this is basically the most common cervical spine fracture in this age person. It is also seen in kids. So it's the extreme, and kids, because they have just big, fat, cute bodies, and the neck only moves up here because it's a big head on a little body. This can occur with a ground-level fall, exactly like this mechanism. Absolutely can happen. And CT scanning is crucial. Now, if she's in your urgent care, your fast track, you are going to go get a cervical collar, a good kind of cervical collar, and get that on her before you get her sent anywhere. You want, you don't, think about that. If that thing slips, we're in deep trouble. She's got, that's, that's a very high cervical spine injury. You're going to put her in the rigid collar right away, and then the treatment will vary. For my great aunt, actually this happened when she was 94, not 84. Um, for my great aunt, they basically put her in this thing for, for six months. Her, her, she came to my hospital. Her first question to me when I went to her bedside was, can I still go to your Christmas party? We have a Christmas party every year. I said, of course you can. And she said, can I still drink all my red wine? And I said, of course you can. And she did it. And by God, she healed and lived four more years. Totally fine. Healed beautifully. Lived four more years. Awesome, awesome lady. So the whole point of this, remember to spit. Remember the most serious thing it could be, the most probable thing it is, what's the weirdest thing it could be, so you keep your differential nice and deep. Think about the treatments that you do for those things so you kind of keep your brain fresh. And again, not everything is the scary needle in a haystack. But if you take this approach, you're not going to miss that needle in a haystack. I'm not going to go this, a few more cases that are kind of bonuses in there. Thank you for your time. We're going to do, I think, the cutting-edge literature, right? Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. We encourage your comments or questions. You can reach us at support at ccme.org. And please check our library of educational content at ccme.org. Thanks for listening and bye for now.